Amazon Studios presents 13 Lives from producer-director Ron Howard. Los Angeles Times raves, the film is an extraordinary story, a testament to the guardian spirit possible in any of us. For your consideration in all categories, including Best Picture and Best Film Editing, 13 Lives, streaming now on Prime Video. Listeners should be aware, there may be spoilers. Last seen nine days ago, 12 boys and their coach are trapped in the flooded caves. You try and dive those kids the whole way, all you'd be bringing out is dead bodies. With oxygen running low, the entire nation is anxiously waiting for what will happen next. Welcome to Editors on Editing, the podcast in collaboration with American Cinema Editors and Pro Video Coalition. I'm Glenn Garland, and I'm joined by James Wilcox. James started his editing career in news at CNN and WGA-TV in Atlanta, Georgia. As a producer-editor, he then won the Los Angeles Area Emmy Award for Lip Sync, the Millie Vanilli scandal. James has since gone on to cut numerous TV shows and feature films, including Genius, Einstein Chapter 1, for which he won the Eddie, Genius, Picasso, and Aretha, Roots, CSI Miami, Hawaii Five-O, Dark Angel, My Wife and Kids, Reno 911, Everybody Hates Chris, Hellbilly Elegy, and now the powerful moving film, 13 Lives. James, it's a huge pleasure to have you. I loved what you and Ron had done with 13 Lives. I was riveted. Glenn, thanks for having me. First, how did you become an editor? I went to Clark Atlanta University. And I got my very first internship in my sophomore year at CNN. And I loved the kinetic energy that was going on in the newsroom and all the people that I was meeting and just the fascination of how news came together, ultimately leading up to its broadcast and what role editing played in that. And I was absolutely fascinated with the manipulation of time. We would watch a game that could be up to three hours, but then it would be cut down to 20 seconds, just showing the highlights. And from there, I got my second internship at the local CBS affiliate, went into their sports department, And eventually, after the coffee runs and not blowing that, one day he finally said, I'm going to teach you how to edit. And I started cutting my very first time on a tape-to-tape machine. I remember it was called a Convergence ECS-90, I believe it was. Was it like the old Grass Valleys or? Grass Valley came later. Oh, wow. The Grass Valley and the Sony 900s came later. It had a joystick. And you controlled your rewind, your play forward. You had a button that you would mark in and then another one you would mark out. But in those days with tape to tape, no one really ever trusted their first cut. The machines would slip three frames and it would be, is that the proper endpoint that I want? So you'd have to offset all those machines. And they were different in every room. Some were more frame accurate. Others would slip as much as five frames. And it really mattered with sound where exactly you're marking in and what you want or else you'll have an upcut soundbite or whatever it was. Sure. So I did that, became really good at it. I loved editing. And then the guys from the news department said, upon your graduation, we're ready to hire you as a news editor. So that's how I got my start in this industry, then transitioning into the news department and ultimately landing me here at CBS in Los Angeles. Did you intend to just stay in journalism or did you always want to move over to scripted? 
When I first got into it, Glenn, I never had an idea of the world of opportunities and all the various forms of storytelling as an editor. I just was so glued and magnetized to editing from a news perspective. But when I got to Los Angeles, like many people, with so much opportunity here, two years prior to my leaving CBS, I started freelancing into the world of reality, documentaries, special event programming, music videos, music docs. And that's what started opening the door for me to explore other forms of storytelling. That increased my desire and hunger to start working in the scripted world. How did doing documentary, journalistic, unscripted editing influence you as an editor and how you work now? It plays a role in all my work, especially with 13 Lives. Eventually, I started taking a procedural and a journalistic approach because of how it was shot, a lot of handheld material, Mm. and it seemed to lend itself into the authenticity of the film and the style of the film. I didn't take a deliberate approach to cut the film like a piece of journalism, but it's kind of in my DNA. And I don't think you need a journalism background. But the length of the movie and the amount of footage that we had coming in started mandating, what do we need? What can we show and not tell? Where's the audience? What are they understanding? Where are we in our timeline with rescuing the boys? How am I modulating the multiple timelines and storylines that are going on? And so my journalistic background played very much a role in my cutting style for 13 Lives. You could totally see it, and that's fascinating, and it probably does influence everything that you cut. It really does. And I'll tell you this too, Glenn. A lot of people feel like it feels so real because when we set out to make the movie, we never intended to be manipulative or have a Hollywood version of this that would offend the people who are the survivors of this story, the people of Thailand, the UK divers that were in it. We didn't want to glamorize it. We wanted people to get a real sensory, firsthand point of view, feel and vibe for what it must have been like to have been part of the rescue team. But those conversations have to happen earlier. They don't just begin in the cutting room. Ron, he's been doing these documentaries that he really loves exercising those muscles. And so I think the last two films we've worked on, I've seen a lot of his documentary influence play a major role in how the film is shot. And so you get all these macro moments and micro moments, and it's fantastic. And it lent itself particularly well for this style, for this story. Absolutely. And it could so easily have been these British divers come in and save these Thai people. It could be this white savior type thing. And you had to walk that delicate line of really showing all the different aspects and all the different people who were working together. And it was a team effort. That was paramount to us. We always wanted to make sure that the Thai people were at maximum effort and care and concern to get their own boys out. And of course, the Navy SEALs wanted to be the guys to go in and get the children. But this form of diving is so specialized, sump diving, cave diving, that Rick Stanton and John Valanthan specialize in. It is extremely dangerous. Every time they move, the silt kicks up. There's almost zero visibility. Stalactites are right in front of your face. You're banging and bumping into them. It is extremely precarious work. But not making those guys the sole heroes was very high on our list of story elements to modulate. Absolutely. 
And I thought that you guys did a good job with the water guy and all the Thai crews working to make sure that the cave didn't fill up with water. I thought that intercutting between the divers and the rescue team on top of the mountain was a good way to balance it out. There was massive Thai involvement. I thought it was really important for us to show that beyond the effort of the SEALs, it was an entire nation that was invested in the rescue of their children. Well, there's that very powerful scene where they talk to the rice farmers. And the whole idea is if we divert the water, we're going to destroy the rice crop. This is their whole livelihood. And they decide that they're going to make that sacrifice. That scene is very emotional. It's short. It really speaks to the heart of the entire mission. It's one of volunteerism and sacrifice in an effort to save 13 people. And you're hitting on something that Ron and I had a lot of conversations about. Because as we wrapped the movie up, I kept telling Ron, what was the closure on those rice farmers? Did they ever get compensated? How did they fare the next year? He didn't really think it was a major part, the aftermath of what happened. And then finally, it was on a Sunday morning, he sent me an article that said that the villagers were offered compensation, which we then used as one of the elements in the movie to settle out that storyline. Seeing those rice fields being dumped on, I don't know if that was a visual effect or if they shot a bunch of water going into rice fields, but it was very powerful to watch that. It's enhanced. So we had pumps on location in production that were pumping out water. It wasn't the thousands and thousands of gallons being diverted that you see on screen. We started with a practical element and ended up with a very powerful visual effects. Sure. One of the things that I think is really powerful in the story is man against nature and the power of nature. And you guys showed a lot of that with some of the montages or the scenic beauty shots intercut with the boys going into the cave or the rain coming down and seeing the water buffalo, the storm coming in with the clouds and mankind using its ingenuity to battle that. Thank you for saying that because it's really fascinating to me how nature is just such a nourishing element, but at the same time, it can be very, very violent. On that last day, it was all about trying to get the boys out before the monsoon rains came again because the cave was going to flood for sure and probably kill them all. And you really created that ticking clock with the newscast talking about the impending doom. And there's a great transition as it starts to rain where one of the mothers is looking at her phone and the rain starts to fall on the phone. And then you cut to her child as the water starts to come in the cave. And I thought that was really clever. A lot of clarity for storytelling was all about the one-to-one cause and effect. She was the most vocal and the most memorable and the most emotional of all the parents. And it was easy to relate to her. That worry as a parent felt like the right way to enter that scene on that last day. Because when people have a sense of loss, one of the first things that they do is they pull out albums and they go through these moments and they think about all the good times and the special moments and the memories. And then it was only right to just cut inside to check on him and see how he's doing. And was that how it was scripted or was that something you guys discovered in the edit? It was something that I chose to do. It just was the most emotional, impactful way to get back into that cave. It was just something in the evolution of the storytelling that felt really weighty and impactful to make that cut. That's amazing. 
There's so many characters in this film. And as editors, we know that it's very tricky to juggle and make us care about so many different characters. Can you talk about the challenge of that? Yeah, it's a large cast with a lot of intertwined storylines. And I think in the beginning, you want to establish what's at stake and who these characters are. And it starts with the boys, the soccer team, and they go in the cave. And then we don't see them again until the divers actually find them. What I found to be a useful tool was to cut most of the characters in a point of view kind of way. We were using a lot of close-ups to establish the underwater storytelling so that you never were confused about who was underwater. You have so many guys going in and out of that cave. The wetsuits are different, but you can't really rely on that. The helmets are different. You can't rely on that. You really do need to punch in close-ups. And so I would use this device of punching in on Vigo and then punching in on Colin, and then we could go wider. So you touched upon the swimming in the caves, and that seemed like a huge challenge to cut because the water is murky. And like you said, we need to follow the characters, and you punched in on the masks. But also, because they move slowly, and because it's so difficult to move, you needed to know how much to show and not bore the audience, but also to show the struggle. Trying to calibrate the pace must have been a huge challenge. One of the largest challenges was the underwater storytelling. On day 10, when the boys are found, that was actually the second scene that I cut. And that really revealed a lot to us because it was very complicated. We didn't have all the principals. We didn't have Vigo. We didn't have Colin. We had their doubles. And then the doubles had the actual real children. Then there were combinations where it was a double for the child and a double for the actual diver. And what that revealed to us was how much we could manipulate the water, which wasn't at all. That's all real-time diving. And then also in those dives, you could never really face replace anyone. We weren't set up to do that. So that meant that the stunt doubles had to dive with their face down or they would dive with their face to the side and sometimes feature the real child. But if it was doubles and doubles, then it was just bodies going through the water. And that's not what we set out to do. We didn't want to make a picture like that where it felt like a cheat. So Vigo Mortensen had gone and gotten certified for diving and says, Ron, please consider letting me do my own stunts. Ron agreed. That influenced Colin, which then influenced Joel Edgerton, Tom Bateman, and Paul Gleason. So all of those guys ended up doing their own stunts. And the reason, Glenn, that scene in day 10, where they find the boys in chamber nine, was so difficult to cut is because I never had all the footage at one time of everything I needed for clear underwater storytelling to show you what they had to go through, all the various obstacles of moving rocks and the twists and turns as all the hours and hours and hours of footage came pouring in, that scene was quite difficult to put together because it was shot over a series of days with second units, with me sending cuts to Ron to go take a look at this. Tell me what you think. If you think we have it, I have some concerns, but just give me some feedback. Tell me how you think I'm doing and if we have what it takes. Because the number one thing I didn't want him to do, Glenn, was to come back from Australia 
and think that we could just manufacture moments that really needed to be authentic with the real guys. That's not something you can fix in post or create in post. No, you don't want to find that you have to go back and reshoot a bunch of stuff to really get the emotion of seeing our leads in the water. What you're looking at in the final outcome of the movie is probably 85 to 90% of our cast members doing their own stunts. It's quite remarkable because it lends so much authenticity and clarity and identification and everything that works. I even asked our visual effects supervisor if there was a take that I like. Could I keep the take if one of the divers had water in their mask? And he was telling me that that wasn't going to be possible either. So it gave us a lot of great framework of what was going to work underwater and how we could proceed from that point on. And the underwater footage was voluminous. We had two units going, multiple cameras on six and seven days. That's what really blew up a lot of the footage count. And in the end, all totaled, we had 382 hours of film that I had to go through and cut. Talk to me a little bit about organizing that. Was your assistant helping with getting that stuff pared down? How did you deal with that much footage? Well, I always call my lead assistant, associate editor, Simon Davis, who is a rock star. He had worked with Dan Hanley before on Rush. So he had some sense of heavy volume of footage and foreign language. He is amazingly organized. But then I went through and pulled selects of the greatest moments that I would then begin to consider for, I'll say it was my assembly, even though I like to call it my editor's cut, through all the various chambers up until chamber nine where the boys are found. And then when I finally put my cut together, it was about five hours. I told Ron, he was expecting four And I said, I think it's going to be even longer. All the dives were fat so that he could see what he was responding to. Then we went about the business of cutting down the dives and figuring out what worked best in the dives. One of the things that he responded to very quickly was the POV shots. Tell me about going into the POVs, though, because that could be very difficult knowing who we're with going from third person to first person. Well, the POVs were super dynamic and strong. It starts with understanding the cave and the geography. In my initial cut to him, my very first pass, I always watch him as he's watching my cut. And it tells me a whole lot about his reaction and where to lean into and what's not working as well as I thought. And when he saw those POVs, it was the first time that you could see the stalactites in this giant close-up of Rick and he's going in there and he bangs his head on it because he can't really see, Ron just responded, that's it, James, that's it, more of those, more of those POVs. (laughs) And I thought, you know what, he's on to something there because that is what's giving us the firsthand experience of what it would be like if we were going through there. We just kept upping more and more and more until we got to that point where, yes, we are now experiencing simultaneously what the divers are experiencing. And once I punched in on the close-ups, it was really clear which diver we were showing. And I think that made the audience squirm quite a bit, made for a lot of claustrophobic moments. Yeah, that was really effective. I remember a piece where it's a very tight shot of them tying off a rope, and that became important not only for distinguishing where those two divers went, but that's your lifeline underwater. If you let go of that lifeline, you don't know where you're at at all. Yeah, I mean, I thought it was so powerful when Chris loses the lifeline and it totally shakes all of his confidence. And it was great 
showing his emotional state and how he wanted to help the boys, but also was really doubting himself. Yeah, because he knew as a diver that lifelines everything. And I thought that was one of the realistic special moments in the film. And then there's that final scene where he breaks down. They have this infectious, nervous laughter. And it goes from laughter to Chris suddenly breaking down. And it's just a really powerful, powerful moment. It just felt so honest. There's several other moments in the movie like that. I thought when Dr. Harry's father died, which again, the irony of life that he risked his life to save 13 others. And then he gets a call that his dad has just passed away. I love where Rick and John talk to him about their plan to anesthetize the boys. And he's like, I didn't come to kill children. That's not what I'm going to do. And Rick has to convince him they're dead anyway, if you don't do this. It's really powerful. And I think Joel Egerton is just fantastic in the film. They all are. Joel is terrific. When he comes into the movie, it almost gives it new life because with him, there's an integrity, there's an honesty, and you can see that he explains medically how precarious this mission is, how crazy that idea is, but it's one that he has to begin to consider because Rick and John are desperate. They've thought of everything. Rick was deeply disturbed by the fact that they would be the only people potentially to ever see them alive. It's a very, very, very dangerous thing to anesthetize people not in an hospital environment. And another thing, Joel gives a moment of levity when he's talking about Brazil knocking Belgium out of the World Cup. He's really terrific when he's trying to distract the kids before he gives them the shot because they're a football team. And he's talking to them about something naturally that they're interested in. I love the runner, which is whenever any diver is taking any boy, he's like, he's the best diver in the world. <laughs> it's like, okay, they're all the best divers. And I don't know if these boys understood English enough, but nobody's questioning like, wait, you just said this other guy was the best diver. Yeah, they can't all be the best diver. Yeah. So I thought that was really clever. Another scene that I think that Joel is just fantastic in is when he's talking to the governor about the fact that it's very likely that they're going to have casualties. It's just a simple scene. It's one of my favorite moments that actually never changed from the original cut. I don't think I had a single note on that at all. That's how awesome he was and how well the scene played. And the governor is equally fantastic with his response. And it's just another reminder of how impossible, how dangerous, how precarious the whole mission really was. Yeah, talk to me about that because I knew what happened to the boys and yet I was riveted and I was really nervous the whole time trying to take a story that a lot of people know about and make it fresh and make it suspenseful is a challenge. What I thought was brilliant in the script was that we never see them again until the divers discover them. Yes. I was wondering whether you guys had made an editorial choice to not show the boys until the boys are found. They're gone. It's a mystery. I think that's what gets you so invested into how are the boys doing because you never see them until Rick and John find them. And that was one of the things that when I read the script, I was hooked immediately. I thought, how brilliant is that? Through the point of view, we find those boys from Rick and John. And that was a scripted beat, but there was discussion also about 
did Ron ever shoot us seeing the boys so we could cut back to them just to see how they were doing? And he never did. And we were completely sold on the way it's scripted works best. It just gave the audience such a moment of relief because there's so many ebbs and flows that when they find the boys, there's a great sense of release. And I've seen it across multiple screenings. And that's only the beginning because the dilemma becomes, now that we found them, how are we going to get them out? Yeah, and you establish that one scene when Rick and John are with that one Navy SEAL who is quite a good diver, and he's freaking out. How are they going to get these boys who've never put on a mask and have never dived? Can you imagine finding these kids, seeing their faces? And that was all cut similarly one-to-one as the documentary footage that John Valanthan was shooting when they found the boys. The pattern is very similar. There's a shot where the feet are all approaching. They're up on that ledge. And then you see a shot of the coach and you can't make out who it is, but you just know that's the team. And they don't know how many of them are alive or anything like that. And that was all cut purposely to mimic the actual footage, the point of view and everything. But again, the dilemma being, how do you get them out? That was the big reveal that no one knew. And when I went back to my research, what people really understood was, yes, the boys got out, someone died. I think Elon Musk was part of it. Didn't he call someone a pedophile or something? Those were the vague things surrounding the film that they remembered. But when you have a film like this, the challenge becomes, well, what happened along the way? Because there's the scene where the governor tells the team, no one can know about this, not even the parents. Mm. Then they send the media away. And that's what's blowing everyone's mind is that they have a sense of recollection of the story, but they don't really have any details. And the movie unravels what really happened. And even after the first boy is successfully brought out, it doesn't lend itself to automatic success. No. No, and I love how you brought the first boy out, the challenge of getting him out. But then even once they get him out, they're not out of the woods. And then to bring them through the cave on pulleys, I love that transition that you guys did with all the umbrellas opening up and then revealing them coming out of the cave and into the helicopters. I'd like to talk a little bit about that scene because this is where Ron and I now have a bit of a shorthand and there's a trust on me trying different options and ideas away from the script and sometimes away from the way that his plan is. Originally, that scene was conceived as an intercut between boy number one, two, and three. And then by the time we got to the fourth child, you understood medically what needed to happen and what the technical procedure was and get the kids out of the cave. But I decided that It was so compelling, so fascinating to see all the various stations, chamber one, chamber three, the ambulance, the transport to the helicopters. It was just ultimately emotionally so engaging that I just wanted to stay with him. Confusion in this movie is bad because there's not a lot of distinguishing characteristics amongst them. They're all fairly dark haired. Now look, they don't look alike, but When you have them underwater or they're on a stretcher and they have a mask on and a wetsuit and their face is all being squished in, it's very easy to lose place and attachment of which boy is being brought out. So I didn't cross cut it. I stayed with him as long as possible. And Ron agreed. When he saw it, he goes, yeah, I see what you did there and I like it and we should go that way. 
And then from that point forward, we didn't have to show the entire process anymore. It gave us all the clarity we needed, and we wouldn't have to be redundant by showing the full extent of everything. Well, that is the trick because you do have 13 boys, and that is a huge challenge, having it be fresh every time the boys come out. That's right. Redundancy in this whole movie was just going to add to length, and it was going to stagger the urgency. There's seven dives that take place in the cave, and each dive has to have a certain significance. And so part of that whole idea of eliminating redundancy when you have multiple events of the same type was to show it through different points of view. What does it feel like when Dr. Harry goes in? What is it like the first time that the divers, Rick and John, go in and discover the boys? So you're getting a different emotional response on every one of those dive entrances. It no longer became, how do we get them out? But what are the complications with getting them out? That is completely unpredictable. One child wakes up, the other kid stops breathing. And so each one of those divers had, in a way, their own meltdown. Absolutely. Your cut was five hours, so then you had to condense five hours to two and a half hours. Tell me how you and Ron went about cutting it down. Many, many, many weeks across his director's cut and many screenings and just having the audience understand what the really salient points were in the story. And let's begin with the script was long. So there were, I believe... 225 scenes in like 129 pages. Mm. There were lots of multiple introductions that we started getting rid of. There was lots of scenes that we could cut dialogue out and create a new scene by showing and not having to dialogue. And then the actual dives in the water, which was a big time consumption in the movie, but super important. Once we saw the business where they had to go into the cave, it became so much easier to just cut right to why they needed to go in there. You didn't need to see them completely go from chamber three all the way back into chamber nine. By the end of the movie, you know that the race against time is on. We know the difficulty and the obstacles of getting through the cave to the boys. So you don't need to show that anymore. So little by little, we began to cut it down and we picked up urgency and a lot more momentum. And the danger in having a movie that is five hours is this. No department can work on the film until you get it to a reasonable length. You can't have VFX start. You can't have the sound team start. You can't screen a movie that's five hours. We certainly didn't want to screen anything that would need two parts. So we just really diligently got in there and just start looking at every scene, every line. What do we need? What can we get rid of? What will we benefit from getting rid of? And the movie just spoke to us and told us what was needed and what wasn't so that we could clearly have time for the best moments. Amazon Studios presents 13 Lives from producer-director Ron Howard, starring Viggo Mortensen, Colin Farrell, and Joel Egerton. Screen International says the film is smoothly edited by James D. Wilcox. The film's rescue sequence is appropriately electric. For your consideration in all categories, including Best Picture and Best Film Editing, 13 Lives, streaming now on Prime Video. One thing that really accelerated the pace, there was this one scene where Rick and John are talking about bringing Chris and Jason on the mission, and then suddenly they're there. You cut into the cave, and they're about to go in with Chris and Jason. There were certain jumps like that for an audience that made it exciting because 
we don't have to see them flying there, being introduced, being told about the mission. We just jump right forward. Glenn, that's a perfect example of what I meant about the acceleration of the movie and the momentum and the ticking clock of it all, because we actually did have a scene where they arrived at the airport and the guys went and picked them up. And then they explained to them what the mission was and how dangerous it was. And we felt like we didn't need that introduction because we've seen scenes at airports with people picking up luggage and saying, here's the mission. That was how compelling it was inside that cave and at the base camp where it was really difficult when we exited any one of those two locations. Mm. The movie just felt more traditional. And so you have to go with what the strength of the movie is suggesting it wants to be. Films, they start out a certain way. And if you will allow them, they almost tell you what they want to become. There's the scene where we meet Rick and John in their homes, respectively, and there's several other scenes near the end of the film, but most of the film takes place at that base camp where we can see the hub of activity, all the news reporting. It takes place up on the mountain. It takes place inside the cave, underwater, and that's the really compelling stuff that is almost otherworldly, certainly the underwater stuff, because very few people in their lives will ever have the experience and don't want the experience of going underwater in these cramped spaces. I don't know anybody that really finds that appealing. <laughs> these guys these guys who have this rare ability and hobby to go in and do that and love doing it. Ron and I talked about how we could make the cave another character, mm-hmm. make the cave intimidating and claustrophobic and to get underneath people's skin and really affect <laughs> their central nervous system. But what also added to its authenticity overall is the fact that the first 16 and a half minutes is in Thai. Well, I wanted to talk to you about that because the challenge of editing in another language and understanding whether you've got the best performances, whether there's any mistakes being made in Thai. When I initially read the script and I saw how much of it was in Thai, that was the thing that kept me up at night. How am I going to cut basically a foreign language film? And it's not necessarily Spanish or French, which I have some exposure, but this is Thai. Their language is so different. And then on top of that, the boys are from the North. And apparently that dialect is so different that if you ask someone out of Bangkok to talk about the people up in Chiang Rai, it's a very different dialect. Some of the cast members were from up north, one or two of the boys, and they helped us tremendously with validation for accuracy in the dialogue. Initially, what I thought, let's bring someone in of Thai descent and get them on our editorial team, because we're going to need that help with the language and culture as well. And it was during the pandemic, so it was even harder. The city was on lockdown, so it was really difficult to find a person of Thai descent. Now, my assistant editor, my lead, Simon Davis, he had that experience of foreign language in Rush with Italian. So he had an idea of how to translate the material. No one could really tell me exactly how to approach it and cut it. So ultimately, what ended up happening was after I got dailies, the script was in English with a phonetic breakdown in Thai. And I would go through and I would read that. But I found it to be a slow, tedious process. And with a lot of material to cut, I just abandoned it. And then I developed a bit of an ear for the Thai language. Now, what I was concerned about was ad-libs, misspeaking, Mm. ultimately ADR. 
how do you come up with an ADR line that we as Americans want to say, do those words even exist in Thai? And then how do you know how long to carve out in your cut? But eventually, my lead, Simon, he had Google Translator. And so initially, he listened to Google Translator. And on every take, he subcapped what was being said there to the best of his knowledge. Wow. Because the takes were different. They were being encouraged. Ron encouraged the actors. <laughs> no way. It's tough enough that I'm cutting this movie that's in Thai, and it also has lots of ad-libs and lots of emotional content to it. <laughs> Man. Yeah. So I got a solid, let's say, 10 scenes cut, and then we had translators lined up at every stage of the process. So initially, the first translator sat with Simon on the scenes that I had cut, and he said there were just one or two things we needed to slide around. A word maybe I had clipped or one of the actors misspoke, but I never messed with their natural rhythm and pace. I left mm. that alone. I'll give you an example. One of the scenes with the parents, when the mother goes and approaches the governor and says, hey, when are you going to get these boys out of there? And the governor's trying to avoid her, and she's lost it. She has no more patience. Well, that scene naturally is confrontational, so no matter what language, you kind of want to pace it up. What I found universal to people is the emotion behind every scene. I really started developing an ear for, yeah, they're saying the same thing across these takes. But one take is better because whomever was speaking in Thai, you could feel the emotion behind what they were mm -hmm. saying. Mm -hmm. And that's what I used as a sort of beacon to lean on. That's the take that I want. That's great. Talk to me about the maps and the choice to use the map graphics. I loved how it helped you guys compress time because you could say they'd been going for five hours rather than making it feel like it was five hours for them to get to this chamber or that chamber. Initially, I knew we were going to have on screen what day it was. But what we developed as we started cutting down the movie we needed a great sense of time, distance, and geography, location mm -hmm. in the cave. Where are they? Because it wasn't really laced in the script a whole lot. The locations were talked about, but the locations didn't necessarily mean anything. What was important to us as people watching the film was how difficult is it to get to them? And how much time will it take? Because the time it takes to get to them ultimately affects the oxygen that's used. Yeah. And the difficulty in the terrain to get to them and overall makes the mission that much more taxing. But that was an idea that evolved out of story. Okay, the boys are roughly a mile and a half back. And that resonates with people because when you think of a mile and a half, just in terms of walking or running, that's a significant walk. That's all very relatable. And then let alone to go, let's apply that distance and time and difficulty to diving with zero visibility, flooded waters, and all the challenges that come with the geography of being in a cave. Now you get a sense of how massively impossible it is to find these boys. Yeah, and I thought it was very powerful where you showed the mountain and then you drew onto the mountain how far back they were, which was like three quarters of the way through the mountain. You just saw what a daunting task it was going to be to get these boys out. Yeah, well, that mountain graphic overlay was twofold to just remind people that they're in the belly of that mountain. I think once you got into the cave environment, it was easy to just think underwater. At one point, we had a scene that discussed every available option 
most of them were ridiculous and would not work by the nature of the cave geography. So you had to remind the audience that water is pouring down from up top and there's no drilling from the outside to get the boys and pull them out that way. That graphic showed that they were way too deep to go from up top. That's exactly right. And that's what helped reinforce the idea of we have to show this mountain. And I even on occasion, when the Navy SEALs were going, I cut back to geography where you can just see the heavy cloud cover over the top of the mountains. And just to remind everybody, this is what they're going through. This is the passage. And then you cut inside and you can see, oh my God, this looks impossible with these narrow crawl spaces and getting these tanks through there and not getting stuck and not losing your bearings. But I think that was one of the things that the audience responded to because you could just clock that and not have to have a lot of dialogue and then overwhelm the audience with too much information. They almost served as checkpoints to me as part of my journalistic background. How could we graphically tell this story? How can we tell this story with as few words as possible? Exactly. Talk to me about making sure that Vigo's accent is accurate throughout because he's an American playing a Brit. And not only playing a Brit, but where he was from, I think it's Covington, England. Vigo was amazing. He is one of the most detailed, precise, prepared actors that I've ever had the pleasure of cutting. He was so on point with this movie. He was a stickler for that accent. And Colin as well. Colin's from Ireland, and where these guys are from, they all have a bit of a different dialect, and it was just a fun thing to watch Vigo work. He really, really embodied Rick. We had a screening in my cutting room. Rick is looking at the portrayal of Vigo playing him for the first (laughs) time. I opened the door, credits were ending, and it was a very nervous moment for me. I didn't get nervous about a lot with the movie, but I was just like, okay, so the real life hero is actually seeing the characterization of his part. And I wonder what he's going to have to say. And his back was to us. When the door opened, he knew it was Ron and I coming back and he turned around and he just had a big old smile on his face. He didn't even have to say a word. And then he just told Ron that he loved the film, how accurate it was. He was very, very happy. I was so relieved, but I was also in awe of him, which doesn't happen very often. But I'm looking at this man who risked his life to save 13 other people. And he just went back again and again, just like a real life hero. And he was really almost like an everyday working class kind of guy. You're not acting like a big deal, but you are a big deal. (laughs) (laughs) Talk to me about working with Ron and his process. I'm involved at every level from the first time casting options are presented. He's soliciting my opinion, which is beautiful, showing me what the choices are that are coming in from him, from others, and just asking my opinion. And like when I read his scripts, I totally know that I'm going to read them three times before I talk to him because it's going to be more than just a general, what do you think? I'm going to talk to him about details of certain things that I think we can lean on. I'm going to talk to him about challenges of how would you shoot this? I have ideas on how sonically we might have some opportunities to take the audience on a ride. He really has gotten me super involved as a partner, and that's really special. Now, when we get to the phase of production, we've been in different locations. So I'm always sending him cuts and he's giving me feedback. He tells me, just keep going, don't do the notes. But I usually do the notes when they're fresh. I don't always send back those cuts, but the notes are done and set aside. 
by the time he comes in, it's pretty much a good cut of what he's looking for, what we've discussed, instinctually what I'm feeling about the movie. This is one of the things that I've noticed over the years, and initially this happened on Genius. He really likes my gut instincts on performance because I'm very fascinated by people. And you can tell that Ron is the same way. His movies are driven by the human spirit against either insurmountable odds or people that are doing amazing things under duress. So our instincts on how to tell the story through performance have aligned very well since the first day that we ever worked together. And then when we get into the cutting room, one of the things that I love about him the most is he always has a plan, but he is open to see what I present as well whether it leads to an alternative idea that ultimately makes its way into the film. If it's my idea or his idea, the best idea wins. That's what is so beautiful about him. He doesn't have that kind of ego where it feels like this is personal because I never present anything like that. Now we're at a point in our relationship where we can agree on certain things creatively. We can disagree on certain things creatively, but we also keep scratching at it and testing each other and pushing each other in a way that is ultimately healthy for the project. We'll still go out for a beer afterwards or grab dinner or what have you. And we probably will talk about baseball. We actually have a lot in common that way. And he's just a great soul. He's a good family man. He seems like a really great husband and father. I've had the opportunity to meet his family on many occasions now. He's met my family. So now it feels like we're all really comfortable with each other and our work is really starting to blossom. That's fantastic. As an editor, he's everything that you would want. He's not necessarily precious about anything. What he is precious about is the best version of the story that he can tell. That's great. I wanted to talk to you about the sound design because I thought it was really interesting that it did not rely that much on music. And the sound design was really delicate. When they're underwater, things are muted. And I really love the way that the whole soundscape was designed. When I read the script and I thought, we're in this underwater world, this is an opportunity to have a real sensory approach to the storytelling. It's otherworldly to be underwater like that. When we had our first meetings, it was our mixer, Chris Burden. It was our sound supervisor, Oliver Tarney. Rachel Tate, who was fantastic, who also was one of the sound supervisors, she wasn't present at that meeting. When I mentioned earlier about point of view, initially those first couple of dives, I didn't want music to be a part of them at all. And neither did the sound guys. They kept asking me, are you sure? And I was absolutely 100% sure because they were on board with it as well. What I wanted you to feel was, what does it sound like when Rick and John first enter the caves? What is it like when they bang their heads on the stalactites, when you hear their tanks scraping against those rock walls, when you hear the breathing underwater? It is different. It's a calmer breathing than the normal person. To contrast, their breathing against the tie divers. They also were very researched, Oliver and Rachel, on what you hear underwater. They were explaining it to me that you don't really hear necessarily through the openings of your ear when you're in water. You kind of hear through the vibrations just below your ear, like around the neckline. Hmm. After production wrapped, they ended up going with John Valanthin to a cave and they had these hydroponic microphones. They just did a tremendous job. When we first started talking about the movie, I had seen the sound of metal. 
And I was fascinated sonically with what the Sound of Metal was doing. They do such a great job with sound in that. And then I started doing research and listening to the guys who were part of the sound team. And I noticed that they used hydroponic mics at some point. I brought that up to Ron, but you know, to mic those guys with hydroponic mics for production sound, it was going to be a big deal. So we decided to not do that and enhance it afterwards. So this brings me to score. This was one of the hardest movies for me to tempt score. Some of those lower tones would mute right into the lower tones of the water and the diving, and they wouldn't quite punch through. Everything just kind of flattened out, Glenn. And it was tricky because there was not a lot of score to draw from. Initially, I listened to at least 25 different scores, and I had notes on all of them, from traditional Thai scores to rock music or oldies in Thailand that would be used as source cues in the background. I had choices ready that would layer with the diving. I had traditional folk Thai music, which every time I put it in, oddly enough, it felt like Americans trying to respect the Thai culture and force-fitting Thai music in, and it just felt very inauthentic because the movie, while it took place in Thailand, it almost was the world's story. In the end, the movie's strong. We're getting great feedback. We're not necessarily needing score to save us. You talk about the cave being a character, and the music almost echoed the cave and its personality. I thought that that was really effective. And the fact that you didn't have a lot of music When you did have music, it was much more effective because it was so sparse. It's like when you overuse close-ups, they don't have as much impact. I think that there was a huge section where you didn't hear anything, and then they find the boys, and you start bringing in some music. It felt that much more emotional because it had been absent for so long. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's exactly right. We did not want people to feel manipulated into being emotionally engaged in the movie. We thought that it was enough to be earned and use music where we needed it. Every time we use it is for a different purpose. I keep mentioning the redundancy and not being predictable. That's what we were trying to do throughout the whole film, to keep fresh ears and eyes on it. We did some scoring at Air Studios in London. It's in a church and a lot of composers record there. They had a 50-piece string section and they played all the various cues Sometimes it was soft, sometimes it was loud, sometimes it was meant to be very personal, and other times it was more orchestral. And so we had a lot of those stems available to us, and every night the music editor and I would go sit together and I would tell them, okay, we're only going to take the cello for this part. We don't need full orchestration. It's getting too big, and it's starting to feel like a movie. We didn't want it to come across as a Hollywood Sure. One area that I thought showed the dynamics and the sound was when the Thai seal runs out of oxygen. He starts panicking and you've changed the pace and it's very fast cutting. And then as he loses air, the sound changes. It becomes very gentle, the sound design. The pace changes. It was a very effective sequence. That's one of the sequences I'm most proud of because we worked the hardest because the guy who lost his life, the diver, Saman Gunan. He is a national hero in Thailand. 
the idea with that scene was we were going to show him on his mission, but sonically we needed to see how efforted he was by trying to drag those wetsuits that distance to get it to the boys. So you could hear his breathing. And then once he got tangled up in the line, you could see the frantic nature of it. It was almost explosive. There's real panic there. We came up with the idea on the stage to just start layering it down and deconstructing that scene. You heard his breathing, you could see the bubbles and the whole thing. And as he goes further and further, you began to hear the wheezing. Then in that giant close-up, there's no more sound. All the sound drops out. The regulator falls out of his mouth, which is very chilling. As you'd hear the scrape of the tank against the stalactite. And that's the last thing you hear. And that was initially in my cut. I was just like, I'm not sure how to close it out sonically. I pitched it to the guys on the stage. We presented that scene to Ron and he loved it. The look on his face was just amazing because we finally have tackled this scene. We've done proper respect. We've shown dignity for Simon's efforts. We all felt like we had a creative breakthrough there. Absolutely. What would you say was your biggest challenge? Wow. There were many challenges. The Thai language, 382 hours of footage. I was super concerned with the urgency, keeping pace up, making sure the audience understood what day it was, keeping the balance between the flooding fields, the work that's being done up on the mountain with the water pumping, how that's affecting the pumping inside the cave. The intercutting was really effective. Thank you so much for saying that because that was really one of my large concerns. Knowing the outcome and yet maintaining the suspense and the revealing of the details along the way so that the audience is engaged. For a movie like this, I'd watch Titanic again. Here's a movie that we know the outcome. What is it that happens in the details and the character development and arcs that make us so engaged with this film? And then I think also the idea that we could be criticized for having a white savior movie. Yeah. That was really, really important to Ron and us and our entire team, that we respected the efforts of the Thai culture, that we were just being authentic and not manipulative, that we showed them in the best light possible. And we've heard glowing comments and remarks from lots of people from Thailand. In fact, lots of people of any ethnic community, they go, wow, I thought this was going to be a white savior movie because it's told largely through the eyes of the UK divers, but you guys did a fantastic job of balancing it out. Yeah, and I think having emotional scenes with the parents, the coach, the boys, and the Navy SEALs, it really helped balance that. Yeah, we tried very much to let every one of the characters have their moment. First of all, the Thai actors were terrific. And I have to say that our Thai producers had those boys so well prepared. Because as you talk about potential challenges in a film like this with 12 kids, the kids have to be good. And then how do you distinguish which ones we're going to lean on and tell the story through? All of them were very well prepared. But three of those kids have real great talent. You did a fantastic job editing it. And I really enjoyed talking to you. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe. We really appreciate it. What are you thinking? Just a crazy idea. What a skill none of the rest of us have. It's insane. It's unethical. It's illegal. If we do nothing, we'll be bringing them out dead for sure. So you are expecting casualties? Yes. I expect casualties.